I'm Effie Parks. Welcome to Once Upon a Gene, the podcast. This is a place I created for us to connect and share the stories of our not-so-typical lives. Raising kids who are born with rare genetic syndromes and other types of disabilities can feel pretty isolating. What I know for sure is that when we can hear the triumphs and challenges from others who get it, we can find a lot more laughter, a lot more hope, and feel a lot less alone. I believe there are some magical healing powers that can happen for all of us through sharing our stories, and I'll take all the help I can get. In a week when our nation has felt so much loss, it feels good to share this episode that is all about the larger-than-life love that a mother has for her son. Today, I'm talking to the author of the brand new book called Loving Large, a mother's rare disease memoir. In reading her book, I learned a lot about the rare disease known as gigantism. She was so honest and didn't hold back any truth that she experienced through her son's diagnosis and treatment journey. I felt it. I got to chit-chat with her a little before the show, and she is just as genuine and adorable and funny as she is in her book. You can find her book on Amazon and anywhere books are sold. I always include links to my guests and the things we talk about in my show notes, You can find them on my website at effieparks.com. It is a must read and I guarantee you will not be able to put it down. I'm so grateful when people share their stories about the rare disease life. It's so important in so many ways and you never know who will be touched because of it. I hope you enjoy this episode just as much as I did. Here's my conversation with Miss Patty Hall. Okay. Hi, Patty. Hi, Effie. How are you? I'm having a good time. I can get outside now. COVID is lessening. Yes, yes. And hopefully the weather is better in your neck of the woods. Uh, It's just barely better. We don't have snow right now in central Ontario, Canada, but it could be back at any moment. Oh, yeah. That's the way that it is there. I saw snow back in my hometown just this week, so it might be coming for you. That's not right. Well, I am so excited and so thankful that I get to chat with you today. And first, I just want to say what a beautiful book you put out into the world. It's the first book I've read from the mother's perspective surrounding their child with a rare disease that I completely connected with. And it was honest and vulnerable and heartbreaking and empowering. And I'm not just saying that I'm a truth teller. And I, I loved what I read so far in your book. Oh, that's wonderful. That's the highest praise possible that one of my own tribe could uh, see themselves in it. That was really so much what I hoped for. Feeling alone in the world of a diagnosis can be debilitating. Yes. And I loved what you said in your preface. It was so profound about the uncharted territory we're sort of cast into. Right. You said, we are solo on the voyage, but never alone in feeling lost. Adrift at sea together, we endure because love calls us forward. And so we wade in the dark. It's true. It's a it's a love story, isn't it? And someone much more astute than I said this in the last week or so that it was such a love story of me and both of my children, uh, as well as all the love I had around me, but yet how isolated I felt and truly how I isolated myself because I felt so alone. Yeah, I connect with that, like on so many levels, for sure. Mm hmm. I think a lot of us have a story to tell. And while many of us have like so many similarities, it's so unique. And I love getting to hear people's stories and 
you know, it's kind of the reason I started this podcast. I, I wanted to hear everyone's story and I kind of wanted to tell my own. And mm-hmm. why did you want to write this story of Living Large? You know, the idea didn't come from me. No surprise. Uh, I was a full-time writer, but the idea didn't come from me. I like to laugh at myself about that really? one. But yeah, I remember really early on when um, when Aaron, my son, and I were sort of discovering things together. And at some point he said, you know what, like, we should really write this down. We should really write down how we found the doctors and studies that are being done. And we should we should write this down because nobody else knows how to do this. Now, as I say in the book, as he aged, his opinion of that changed. He wasn't all that interested being involved as he was later in his teens. No surprise. But <laughs> it made me realize how what we were doing was something that was so difficult to do. We really could help people. And although that sounds completely altruistic, the other half of it was I wrote to figure it out. And I didn't write while we were going through it. I wrote the book after we were over the most intense period. I could not have written when I was in the intense period of the first 15 chapters of the book, which everyone will see for themselves. My life was a frenzy of just trying to maintain control. And even though I was writing, I wasn't even able to work on any, I wasn't able to do any other work than not surprising. Most rare parents can't do anything other than look after their child during a really intense treatment period, certainly during the seeking diagnosis period. So I wasn't any different. But knowing that I had to write it became pretty self-evident when we hit the wall, as I call it, which was he couldn't be cured. And then I had to write just to figure out how the hell I was going to endure this, how the hell I was going to go into a new normal that was never, ever going to revert to the time before. In the book, I call it the before and the after. And I liken it to this space where two tectonic plates come apart. And this came to me when I was in Iceland five years ago. And I stood there between the before of one side and the after it comes apart. You can almost touch both sides, but you can never put it back together. And that's what life felt like, is no life for me really existed before his diagnosis. And uh, that's an impact that is something I'm both proud of and really sorry for, for all of us. But none of us can go back. I love the way you put that, though. It's really beautiful. So can you tell me what your son's diagnosis is? Sure. And what was happening in those first days to give everybody kind of an idea? Sure. So gigantism is sneaky. Gigantism is the childhood form of an adult disease some people recognize, acromegaly. Gigantism, even more rare. So the gigantism is the childhood version where, to put it, to oversimplify, kids start to outgrow what their body had intended for them. So it's abnormally large growth. So what I was seeing was I was seeing height in my son, but yet we were genetically tall. We knew we had the predisposition for height. So although his tumor, it's caused by a pituitary tumor, although his tumor had likely been growing and somewhat active for possibly years, doctors say, these are very slow growing pituitary tumors. There had been no alarm bells. I hadn't thrown up alarms because he was supposed to be tall. We knew that from birth. He was even extra long when he was born. So during childhood, he was getting taller and taller. He was six foot five at 15 years old. But what I wasn't noticing was that his little brother, two years younger than him, wasn't keeping up. It wasn't proportionate. And so a few things started to happen, like he was, he'd been sweating a lot. He was having trouble digesting food. He was beginning to have random headaches, but nothing came together and nothing really gelled. And then I had these things happen, like my really clever hairdresser said, she thought he had this. And I was, come on, like, you know, she knew someone with the disease. Her her mother had had the adult form of the disease. She was seeing it. And, you know, then 
you know, somebody would say, should he really be that tall? And I'd look at the marks on the wall. But what was happening was that he was progressively in more and more pain. And this is what really hit it off. His joints were in pain. And he was also starting to have headaches. It was the headaches that tipped us off. And why? Because he came to me complaining. And he said, seriously, like my knees hurt so badly, I can't climb a flight of stairs. And these headaches, mom. So I gave him Tylenol to carry in his backpack. You know, he was a 15-year-old guy. I could trust him in grade 10 to take Tylenol for his headache. But the pain in his legs was stopping him cold. And even though he was a little bit of a dramatic kid, and maybe it wasn't (laughs) as dramatic as he was putting it, well, I was wrong. It was that dramatic. He was he was having trouble just uh, walking because of the pain in his joints. And what we were seeing is that his epiphyses hasn't closed. His growth plates weren't closing. So the rest of his body was moving into adulthood. But his soft tissue and his joints were staying firmly wedged in childhood. And oh uh, that's the feeling of it. So he started to describe to me, it feels like this. It feels like that. And I thought, oh, sure it does. And sure enough, as you learn in the book... He was exactly right that what he was feeling and what he was afraid of actually was going on. So he, uh, a very clever pediatrician, diagnosed him instantly. And she'd never seen another case and she won't ever see another case, but she was able to put the symptoms all together. And my son was not very happy with me for dragging him to the doctor. But of course, I'm pretty thankful that I did. Yes, we're all thankful that you did. (laughs) So how long did it take for some sort of like treatment plan to be had for Aaron? and his pain and his headaches? Great, great question. You know, we could get his symptoms dealt with really quickly. It was a couple of weeks before a CT scan showed a massive tumor on his pituitary. It was about the size of a golf ball. Blood work revealed instantly that all of his levels were out of whack, but you couldn't deal with the tumor and you couldn't deal with his extraordinarily high level of growth hormone in any way except surgery. So while we were able to get him on medication to make his belly feel better, we were able to manage his headaches. We were able to manage symptoms. The real problem was the rate at which his body was growing. He was growing at that point about an inch every two months at the absolute peak. Whoa. I know. So when he was his 14th and 15th year, I went back and we had this clever way of measuring height on the wall that we thought was just cute. Well, it ended up being textbook proof for me that he was growing that rapidly. So the goal was that he had to instantly, we had to instantly get the growth stopped. And the only way to do that is to get the tumor out of there. And and, uh, if not out of there, then to get it to stop producing growth hormone. So my life became about finding doctors and finding doctors that could do this. And the early chapters of my book are all about the falling all over myself, asking for favors and injecting myself into situations I would never have done for me. But this was about my kid, like the idea that we had to get him to stop growing. I couldn't even imagine that we were trying to go up against height and growth, things that parents pray for, that most parents are you know, monitoring as a major success and milestone to celebrate. Here we were saying, oh my gosh, We've got to stop him from growing. It just didn't make any sense. He would have outgrown his body to to oversimplify it. And I knew really quickly when I started doing research what the ramifications of that would be. That's really hard to wrap your brain around. Sure. (laughs) Sure. The idea of that. So when you were searching for doctors or surgeons to take care of Aaron's tumor, were you finding that doctors were super intrigued or that they were actually kind of timid and afraid to even maybe be involved in removal of something like that with a kid with this rare disease? Fascinating. I don't think I found anybody timid. And boy, did it change my notion of doctors as well as give me a rude awakening into the rare world. 
everybody wanted a piece of this. There were all kinds of doctors that wanted to try to operate, but they'd never done it before. There's a pretty pivotal scene that I change a lot of names in in the book where a, a particular hospital and doctor were like, yeah, we, we'll try this. And I'm like, no, no, you're not going to try this. I'm going to find somebody who's operated on a 16-year-old, a then 16-year-old child. And I did. And I think one of the wonders of my story and Aaron's back, his treatment background is that through a series of coincidences, which actually don't exist, as we all know, I was <laughs> able to get him to a surgeon who had done a surgery like this on a young man close to Aaron's age just a few months before. He ended up being a surgeon who had taken care of my father after a terrible car accident years before. And that series of events got Aaron dealt with quickly because I didn't know at one point if we would have to uproot our lives and move to the US. We live in central Canada. I didn't know how far we were going to have to go to find a doctor. I knew where there was a doctor that could operate, and I knew that was California. But what I quickly found out was that the central Canada, Toronto in particular, has the three or four Canadian experts in the disease. So yes. luck of the draw. <laughs> wow, that's incredible. It is. We talk a lot on the show about when you're new to this and you're in these doctor's appointments and they're terrifying and maybe doctors know a lot and maybe doctors know nothing about the subject, but trusting your gut in the situations of what you should do and where you should go and how you should pivot as a parent and making these decisions for your kid mm -hmm. is it's incredible. And I think it's a learned skill for a lot of us being able to ask questions and challenge doctors. And it seems like you were so good at that right off the bat. And you just became like this mama bear. And <laughs> it's not true. It's not it's not true in the beginning. But I, I, I quite often would literally and Aaron would do this, too. He would like, where is that voice coming from? Right. And a couple of times we'd go, he would like high five me when there were some pretty dramatic moments where I was feeling a lot like my kid was on stage or, you know, part of a circus sideshow. I really did have to speak up. I was just disgusted with how they had forgotten that a 16 year old kid was in the room. But the thing is, is he looked like a grown man to them. Right. The visual difference to them. He was ex he was expected to respond as an adult. He was expected to have the attention span and decision-making capability of an adult because he was standing six foot six at that point. And quite often I found myself just, I could not, I couldn't bite back the feeling that I had to do something for him because he just couldn't do it for himself. And I was disgusted. You know, there were many times where it was, hey, he's 16 years old. Like, can we please protect his privacy? And he doesn't have to hear all of this. You know, there were a lot of times where I would just ask them to edit it out. And but mostly I let Aaron choose. And that was a deciding factor in our relationship and us staying close through all of this was it was his decision. He did not want to hear everything. So once he told me that, that was what riled me up as sort of the mama bear that we joke about in the book. Uh, but I was not, I am an extreme introvert. I was not wired to speak out for anybody. But I tell you, you threaten one of my kids and apparently, <laughs> apparently my real self comes out. Well, and I just think that's so beautiful that you guys were able to have that communication to where... You know, Aaron still wanted you to protect him, even though he is this seemingly big man right. who's old enough to take care of himself and he needed his mom. Yeah. You know, fear makes us, uh, <laughs> fear is the common denominator, right? He was terrified. And, um, you know, the the spoiler alert is that he has the last word in the book. Aaron always has the last word, but he <laughs> he has the last word in the book where he wrote a letter that is included in the book and 
when he wrote that, it really told me that we had done right by each other. You know, this was a journey that we were on together, but I didn't always know how he was feeling because he didn't want to talk about it. He just wanted to get through it. And he wanted me to do the feeling for both of us. Uh, That letter from Aaron, I really (laughs) respected you for inviting him to include that letter. And I found what he said so moving. Mm. And it's it really is just a testament to your love and support of each other to both validate each other so much. Mm -hmm. We didn't know we were doing it. You know, I mean, don't give us too much credit. The uh, when we were in it, (laughs) it was tough. But, you know, as you said, all you have, you have two things. You have unquenchable love for this person. Mine wasn't a little guy, but he was always a little guy to me. But you have this limitless love for them. And his terror was, it was my job. You know, I was, I was very keen that he might be 15 and 16 and later 17 and 18, but his fear was on me. And whether or not that was the healthiest way for me to approach it, it doesn't matter now, hindsight and all of that, but it was what we did. All I knew is that I wanted him to guide this thing as much as he possibly could stand to. And as a parent, I would have to do the rest because I really thought that was my job. I really felt like it was just what any parent would do. Yeah, I agree with you. When I was looking at your table of contents, one of the chapters was called Wrecking Ball. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'm 100% on board on everything that's probably in that chapter. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I really appreciate how in the book, you really didn't hold back. And, you know, you didn't hold back with a lot of explanation about the anger issue. And I think the anger that some of us feel as parents isn't always super accepted and it's not necessarily brought to life. And I know that you said that you felt shame around some of that in certain Mm -hmm. situations, but Mm -hmm. Patty, I'm not ashamed for you. I'm (laughs) so thankful that you talk about it and bring bring a conversation to it because there's some very dark and disturbing places that we go as parents when our kids have a diagnosis. Yep. And I had anger in places I'd never had anger before. And I'm not particularly good at anger. I literally didn't have any experience of it in my marriage. I didn't have any experience of it in childhood. I'd never really had my own temper, uh, although my sister might say something different. But, the uh, (laughs) you know, it was this boiling cauldron in me. I could not stop it. And it wasn't because anyone else was egging me on. It was truly it that I was lashing out against yeah. the lack of fairness in medical circles. I was lashing out because I couldn't get him what he needed. But the shame is around the places I was getting angry. Like I was getting angry at people who wouldn't look after their health, getting angry at people who made what my kid was going through sound like nothing. You know, some of my rare disease friends and I, we laugh about this It's horrible, but dark humor gets us through. And Mm -hmm. it was, oh, well, at least it's not this disease. And well, you know, it could be worse. It could be that disease. And I just stand there with, you know, and my chin falls to the ground. It's like, well, it could be, but how is anything comparing this to something else going to get us to feel better? You know, we're all in this together. And that was how Aaron and I managed. We did look around and look and say, okay, okay, today it could be worse if. Today it could be worse if. You know, we were constantly getting bad news and getting that attitude of, okay, today we're looking at this. We're not looking at the big picture. That was how we both managed the anger. And, you know, I had to not set an example, but I had to be the guide. If I was blowing up all the time, what was he going to do? 
And there were times when he had every right to be angry, and he's not very proud of that today. His anger was something that he looks back on and wishes he didn't have, but I thought he was so justified to feel as angry as he did. I was glad he was expressing it. Absolutely. I think that's important. And I think it's important that he knows that you feel that way. Because when stuff like that gets pushed down, we all know what happens. Yes, <laughs> we do know yeah. what happens. Ugh, Patty, there was <laughs> another part of your book. Okay. <laughs> on page 165, you talk about the memories of snuggling Aaron and probably your other son and remembering the smell of what I'm assuming is the pink Johnson and Johnson lotion that we all <laughs> of have a nostalgic memory to. <laughs> of course. And baby powder and you were caressing, you know, those silky, squishy baby cheeks. Mm -hmm. And then also like being intruded from upon from the days of being like impatient and smelling the latex and smelling the medical equipment and having that flood just like, you know, uninvitedly intrude on these moments that you have that you've kept so close and then it's a burning ball of fire all of a sudden. Yeah. Have you found that you're more okay when those memories come flooding into you? Are they less exposing than they used to be? They sure are. But I tell you, I would be a fool to convince myself I won't smell them again. I won't have this. I think I call it the olfactory smackdown in the book. Oh, um, that's good. And what it, what it is is that... Um, I have revisited it. I mean, Aaron had surgeries and then um, now he goes for, you know, regular MRIs and follow-ups. And although I go with him on appointments 90% of the time, because we, kind of, we still kind of love hanging out and having a good time. Mostly it's, it's because I feed him and I do the driving, if you want the truth. But <laughs> um, we do that stuff now. And, um, you know, what gets me through now is I look around and I see my pain on other people's faces now. And although we don't go to children's hospitals now, because Aaron ultimately was treated in adult hospital because we needed the experienced surgeon, the experienced doctor, and we needed a bed that would fit him because he was six foot six. That's what gets me through is I see my anguish on someone else's face. And when I smell it now, it reminds me, but it doesn't take me back. And that's just the blessing of time. And that he hasn't had another surgical intervention uh, since the first one. It could happen again. I don't know when, and we won't know when, but right now it's a matter of maintenance that fortunately he has um, medication that is working to keep the piece of tumor that remains. It's keeping it at bay. He did have radiation that has, uh, radiation has knocked back the tumor, whether it's never made it smaller, but it has uh, made it not be actively producing at the levels that it was. We'll cross that bridge, you know, when we come to it. Now he's an adult and will make those decisions for himself. But I don't think he'll want to make them alone. But you know what it is, is I wonder what he remembers. And I just don't have the heart to ask him. I wonder the smell of latex or latex gloves or or adhesive or gauze. I wonder what the smells of first aid kits make him think of, you know. And uh, I don't think I could bear to hear him describe it. Just imagining that makes me kind of ill, <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, like what he probably thinks about it. You're right. And he does still remember every single detail of the most difficult times. Uh, occasionally, something will come up in conversation and he'll say, remember when or how long do you think that was or who do you think was in the room when? Uh, just to sort of buff up his own memory. And I'll tell you, I, I like to pretend I don't 
remember, but <laughs> he knows I wrote a book, so I think he'd call me on it. <laughs> what? Well, I'm I'm just so happy you did. And, you know, really the both of you for sharing this part of your story, because I think that, I mean, the value that's in this, especially for new parents and parents like me and even parents like you who yeah. maybe have gone over what the worst is so far that have still maybe never visited you know, kind of the emotional part of it. Right. I think that your book is just so valuable to our community and to the friends and family of us living in it who want to gain some perspective on our days. No, it means everything, really does. You always hope that it'll reach the people. You know, you finish the book and you're so glad that it's out in the world and you've been at it so many years because they really are labors of love, uh, a lot like raising children. And I so dreamed it would find itself in the hands of people that need it most. I think those of us that are lonely, sailing alone, wondering if we're the only people who feel this insane, this unstable, this emotional, this passionate, this angry. Uh, and drop everything, including our marriages, best friends, other relationships, us, dignity, health, everything to be what our child needs. And I was proud to be part of the group of rare moms that I have met over the years who have done what I did because we do it by sheer instinct. Nothing drives you like your child being in need. All of this stuff just makes the path easier for the next family. And if that is what we can do, it's just such a big give. It really is. You know, you said how I didn't hold back. And I and I think, what what is there to hold back now? And I know that personally, I, I went farther. But, you know, believe it or not, there is stuff I held back. But there wasn't any point because who was I helping? And it wasn't true. It wouldn't be true to say that I, you know, spoiler alert, that I didn't have a complete breakdown. I did. But all that mattered to me was my kids didn't know. I didn't really care who else knew. I just never wanted the boys to know. I never wanted them to become my caregiver. So the pieces that I was able to reveal, I've wrestled with. Uh, and they'll never read it, so they'll never know. Because <laughs> they, <laughs> they are not interested at all. <laughs> well, I guess there's the blessing in boys. <laughs> I think that's true. <laughs> he reminds me a lot of a bunch of my nephews. Uh -huh. Bless their hearts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they... Um, Strong-willed, I think that's what yeah. I would say. Although, you know what, I, I don't know if if his personality was as changed as mine. I believe it was. I believe that he is the person he is because of the disease and in spite of the disease, right? He's uh, he certainly, he has never let it define him. But um, he makes, we all make the best of what we have for sure. And he certainly does. And he carries off uh, six foot 11 and something. He carries it off with aplomb, as I say. He's, yeah, got the, he's, he's got the best clothes in the world, I always say. <laughs> he's He sounds like the man. He sounds mm -hmm. awesome. Yeah, he's great. So was writing this memoir somewhat therapeutic for you? Like, did it help parts of you heal in a way? You know, I, I'm a writing coach, so I work with a lot of folks uh, and I tell them that it will be healing, and it is. But for me, I'm still kind of in this, to be honest. What it did help me do was figure out what I've done. And uh, when you get to the very end of the book, the wisdom about how I've lived my last 10 years comes from Aaron. And he, he reflects on what he has seen me do in the last 10 years. And I won't give this piece away, but putting the finishing touches on a book that I had written, I wrote twice over a five or six year period because so much changed in our lives. Um, I don't know if I healed, but you know what? I learned about myself. 
and I learned that I wasn't very kind to myself in all of those years. I also took terrible care of myself. I made crappy decisions because I really didn't care about anything as much as my kids staying alive on the planet. And that made me make choices that weren't about me. And uh, would I do things differently? No, because Aaron's still here. I have this mantra in the book where I wake up, I still wake up every day and say to myself, he's still here. He's still here. <laughs> it's very sad that that's 11 years oh, later, but it never goes away. So when I screw up, and I do, and when I screw up with his brother, uh, and when I did screw up with his brother, which are some of the, I think, the sweetest, most humbling stories in the book, is, you know, is the other child. When I do that, that's my healing. Because now I can go, oh my gosh, did I ever screw up? So I've healed and forgiven that part of it. Uh, and really, it's about forgiving ourselves, isn't it? Because we don't necessarily need it from our kids. We need it from ourselves because we're so self-critical. Absolutely. And I, and I feel like that, especially as moms, even more so, you know, it becomes pretty consuming, not just as a mom, but as a caregiver. And you do sort of kind of put yourself on the back burner unless you're actively, actively taking care of yourself daily. Right. And that's really hard to do, mm -hmm. especially when you feel alone. I know. And when your kid needs care, you know, for weeks and weeks, we were, and I mean, I was a full-time mom to two teenage kids. That in and of itself is full-time job. I was, you know, hockey mom and driver and all of those things. That was, we were full up already. And then the doctor's appointments and multiple hospitals, multiple doctors. There were the follow-ups, there were the check-ins, there were the tests, there were the scans, there was the pre-op. It was impossible to look after myself. The sad part is that I unlearned how to look after myself and now need to relearn how to do that. And maybe that some of that'll come up in, in a sequel or there will be another book that talks about, that picks up on all of these threads that I left unfinished in Loving Large. Well, I think it's happening. I mean, it's such a beautiful unfolding and you're so vibrant and vivacious. And I think that it's only taking you, you know, on your own path now for Aww. Patty. <laughs> it's I so hope, cool. I hope so. I don't know how to do that, but I am taking all <laughs> advice. <laughs> so what would you say to the parents or caregivers of babies or young kids that you see with that anguish on their face? What would you say to them who are just maybe receiving a diagnosis? You know, I would say, you know your child best. So every time I know that underneath their anguish, which I can't lift for them, underneath it is some self-doubt. Should I ask more questions? Should I push harder? Should I inject myself into these doctor's visits? Should I, should I ask for another opinion? The answer is always yes. There's a, an assistant to my son's brain surgeon says to me in the book, you know, he's your child. You ask as many questions as you want. And that was something that was so out of my nature that when his diagnosis hit, my helplessness was overwhelming. And I would try to support any parent receiving a diagnosis, seeking a diagnosis, struggling with the one that they have, looking for care, handling treatment to puff up your chest and validate yourself. You know your child best, your kid's symptoms best. You know if something isn't right. You also happen to be a learning thinking human that is just as smart as every doctor that you meet. So don't negate that. I can't tell you how many times I would say, what do you think about this? And they would say, oh, we didn't know about that symptom because they would forget or it wasn't one they were focusing on. Or, mm. And it, I would 
you know, I would applaud myself quietly, but then I would think of what else don't they know? And that became how I got through. I just kept saying, well, what about that? Is this connected? The disease is so difficult to understand and so poorly documented, even though it's so famous. There are only a few hundred documented cases throughout time. We've only been documenting modern medicine and this disease for sort of 130, 140 years. So how many cases are there? Not that many. And if there are only a couple of hundred kids in the world with it at any one time, and that's an estimate because no one knows where they all are, then how is anybody going to know, for example, if spots on his arm are related to something or, you know, he would, things like that would pop up and I would say, well, what about this? What about that? And what I love here is that an empowered parent who knows the symptoms, spots everything and doesn't know if it's connected, becomes the diagnosis. So even if you get a diagnosis you're not happy with, that you don't feel explains enough and a treatment that isn't getting your child the comfort and the quality of life that they deserve, keep pushing. I see genius moms do this all the time. And in fact, I sort of devote, in the, I, I dedicate to one named Tony who lives in Australia. I dedicate the book to, in part to her because she came to me when she was on her diagnostic odyssey and she said like, what do I do? I don't think they've got this right. They think she has her daughter. They think her thought her daughter had gigantism and began treating for that. But there were so many unexplained symptoms. There were so many things her daughter Claire was still experiencing that I watched Tony become the warrior that she needed to be and without question kept on pushing for more information, other doctors, other places. And she did end up traveling around the world to get Claire what she needed. But I would want to say to parents, back down for nothing. You don't have to be rigorous. You don't have to be an upstart. You don't have to inflame people. I know we're all afraid that we're going to, you know, piss off the doctor that we really, really need. But the fact of the matter is that doctor's about to learn something too. And our rare kids are changing the landscape for every other kid out there. And it's worth it for me to politely say, can we just go over this list again? Because I don't think we got everything. And in the end, that teamwork is what got Aaron good care. And he still has the same doctors. And we still both go to the medical appointments and we still learn everything we can from the doctors. In the end, they accepted that we had done our homework. That is such important and powerful advice. And yeah, just remembering to look under every rock and not just look under the rock, but ask a question about what's there, what's not there. Right. Really important. Yeah. You know, this being experts of our own kids, I think in the book, I said I got a PhD in Aaron and I really did. I didn't get a PhD in anything else um, because I was busy looking after my kid, but I did know him and I knew that he had splotchy skin on his arms. His teeth, he'd had braces. And the second those braces came off, his teeth started moving because growth hormone was acting on everything in his body. His skin was oily. He had skin tags. His lips were thick. His jaw, his, his brow was prominent. He had much heavier eyebrows. I mean, I would just ask about all those things. In the end, they just said to me, oh, yes, it's because of the tumor. But what if it hadn't been? Because there's so many comorbidities, right? That a single diagnosis or a single genetic explanation is rarely the only thing that's going on with our kids in the rare world. And I say to parents, just to keep looking because quality of life is everything. Yes. And sometimes the smallest little thing, whether it's a skin tag or this or that, <laughs> will be found somewhere in a blog or a post or in a podcast and another right. family will be like, me too. Me too. I'm going to talk to that person. Right. And you know, it's when this happened, it was 2009 and I, I laugh 
because I barely was able to make good use of the internet. And now I say to people, man, let's build resources for each other. Let's build resources for every single of the seven or 8,000 rare diseases. Let's have a web page and an awareness, an awareness group for every single one, because we have enough information between us in order to inform the doctors. And how many parents do uh, have I run across over the years who've, you know, started the genetic testing, they've started mapping their child's disease, they're, they're working on on developing um, vaccines and proteins and treatment options because they knew their child well enough to know what might bring quality of life. You know, it, Lorenzo's Oil is a, an old movie, but it is tr as true today as it was true for those parents then that they did the research to get their child what would improve his quality of life and his longevity. I think every single one of us is capable of doing it. I'm totally cognizant of the parents who are 24-7 caring for their kids and, and feel that reaction when I say something like this. Well, you know, easy for you. Your kid had a diagnosis. It's true. I knew that every single day. And I felt so conscious of the fact that my kid had a diagnosis of a really famous disease, but it wasn't going to guarantee his life. It was only going to get the list of treatment options in front of me. And the rest was uh, completely unknown. So... and up to you and up really really was yep it really was and i'm thankful for thankful that i just had the energy to stay with it until we got him what he needed mm, you killed it patty so far <laughs> so good <laughs> that's sweet so i know that you're a writing coach and you help yep. other people write their stories and true you've finally written one for the rest of us in this community mm -hmm. but what would you say to parents like me who do have a story to tell who may feel something bubbling up but maybe don't think they're a writer or maybe they're too scared do you think it's important to get your story out if you're ready to talk about it yes if you're not ready to talk about it find an awareness association where you can at least banter with folks who will answer the questions with the same information. They'll take the words right out of your mouth. And I think that finding other families whose child has suffered with the symptomology or as close to your disease label or genetic label, that's the answer. I think the books are born later the coping begins with conversation. And I totally believe everybody has a book in them. I don't think the way I approached publishing has to be everybody's way, but I was already a full-time writer. You know, Loving Large is my sixth book. It's um, not my first. It's just my first under my own name that talks about my life. It's not everyone's way, but you know, eons ago, I had a blog before blogs were a thing. And that really <laughs> helped. That really helped. I called it Put, Sim Put Simply and... It was what was going on in my life so that I could talk to the 50 or 100 people that were interested in what was going on with Aaron. That outlet was my way of managing because I only knew one other kid who had the disease for all of those years. Their family, by the way, became my family. The parents of the other child became a lifeline for me. And I was always thankful for that. The books come later. And if it's really meant to be a book, you'll know it. But I look for other opportunities to unite with somebody that really gets what my kid is going through. Nothing feels more comforting than that. Yes. I say it a lot, but yeah, finding the community was like the first time I felt like my shoulders relaxed. I know. It must be true. It was for me. <laughs> That's a lot. Mm -hmm. So Patty, tell everyone where they can find your book. 
Sure. So it's as of today, we're uh, in, we're doing the interview on May 19th. It's available all over uh, North America electronically. You can buy it. And now that bookstores are starting to reopen, it'll be in your bookstore. It's shipping from online to it was shipping in Canada. It officially drops in the US right now. It hits Europe on June 4th. You can order it absolutely everywhere online. And if you really want to make contact with me, you can get it uh, through my website. I send out sort of autographed personalized copies to folks just because I like a chance to make contact with them. And I'm um, pattymhall.com. And literally just follow me on social media and say hello. I just love to know who it's reaching and who it resonates with. Mm, Okay. Thank you so much, Patty. I can't wait for everyone to read your book. And I'm really excited to share our conversation. Thank you. You're welcome. My pleasure. I hope you've been enjoying this podcast. If you like what you hear, please share this show with your people and please make sure to rate and review it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also head over to Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter to connect with me and stay updated on the show. If you're interested in sharing your story or if you have anything you would like to contribute, please submit it to my website at effieparks.com. Thank you so much for listening to the show and for supporting me along the way. I appreciate y'all so much. I don't know what kind of day you're having, but if you need a little pick-me-up, Ford's got you.